You know, three and a half weeks ago, my yard was burned to a crisp. And now I have a family of bullfrogs that live in my yard. I can't figure that out. We're sharing our offering together. Thank you for giving. If you're visiting, don't you think about giving? We give as a part of our worship. We give recognizing that all that we have comes from God's gracious hand. And so we share in our offering together. Just a quick reminder for you before we get into the word this morning. M25, it's a little late for you now if you didn't come thinking about M25. But if I can encourage you throughout the summer to specifically try to remember M25 ahead of time. It's harder in the summer because, of course, people are traveling on vacations. We're not thinking about bringing the groceries. But the folks that need those groceries and the folks that, uh, that need to eat, um, they are very much aware that it is, uh, it's summertime and they still need food. So just an encouragement for going forward. In the se- first service, I asked some of them to run out and go get groceries and come back. A little hard for you to do that, and I don't want you to leave right now during the sermon. But uh, certainly in the future, just make note of that. Summer months are really, really difficult. And many of the food shelves are always in, in need, greater need. So think about that as, uh, as the summer wears on here and we do our monthly M25 drive and we'd appreciate that. This morning, I want to continue in our series. I want to jump right in. We got, I got a lot of ground to cover, and we're talking about seven steps. We talked about last week that seven steps is not a miniature 12-step program. It's seven steps, and it's a strategic plan of our church. It's the strategic plan of Essex Alliance Church that will help us determine how it is that in the future, 5, 10, 15, 25, 35 years from now, the church still exists. It isn't just surviving, but actually thriving. So that's kind of the plan here as we're talking about very specifically seven steps. I would suggest to you that many, many churches do not have a set strategic plan that is specific to everyone in the church, meaning every one of us, when we get done with this, we'll know exactly what our part is. We'll know the role that we play. We'll know what's expected of us. I've always said that if I'm going to be a part of a group or an organization, if I'm going to be part of a church, whatever it might be, it's a reasonable question to say to that group, well, what do you expect of me? What do, you, what do you want me to do? What am I supposed to do if I'm here? And that's what we're going to talk about in these couple of weeks together. We're going to talk through what it means to be a part of this church and how this church we trust will still be in existence, how it will still be growing the kingdom of God years to come. If you're visiting or new this morning, you're, by the time we get done, you're going to learn the secret handshake of Essex Alliance Church. We don't, usually, we don't usually reveal the secret handshake to, for some time, but you're going to find out the secret handshake. You're going to hear the secret plan. It's not a secret plan, not a secret handshake. We're going to talk to you about what we think God has called us to do as being a part of this church. If you are new or visiting this morning, you are going to hear why it is that if a friend invited you or a family member, you are going to hear what's motivated them. You are going to hear why it is that they would think enough of you to say, come to church with me, be a part of my church. You're going to hear that and learn about that this morning and in these next couple of weeks we have together. Now, some of us, if we haven't come from a ch- this church background, some of us are aware of churches that you look back in their history and you think, man, there was this glory day of the church, glory day when things, it was a big church or an instrumental church, it was well known in the area. And you look at some of those churches and you think years later, man, what happened to them? What happened to them? Where did they go? How did they, how did they not su- succeed? How did they not survive? And oftentimes when that happens, there's a lot of blaming that happens. And I'd be very honest with you, oftentimes the person that receives the blame is the pastor. 
or it kind of goes like this. Well, we got a bad pastor, or we had three bad pastors in a row. You know, things really went down. I would suggest to you that it's probably not the pastor. I'm just saying that as a pastor. <clears throat> but I would also suggest to you that the pastor is probably part of it, but I would suggest to you that it's the church. And I'm a part of the church. I don't ever think it's the pastor, but I think it's the pastor as one of the church. And as you're going to see this, I think it falls on the whole church to own who it is we are, what we're to be doing in the body of Christ. So last week, we ended on, we're talking about growth and vitality. We're talking about the story of Jesus. And we ended last week on step one. We talked about Jesus, his calling of Matthew to be one of his followers. And here's how we ended, step one. Step one is this. A follower of Jesus Christ who calls Essex Alliance Church their home builds relationships, friendships of integrity with their unchurched neighbors, coworkers, and teammates. Step one. A person that calls this church their home determines that they will live their life in such a way that they will build friendships with people who are unchurched. Friendships of integrity. Now, there's two words we have to talk about real quickly before we go any further. Those two words are friendships and integrity. Those two words. Folks, the primary pathway that God uses today in leading people to meet Jesus, in leading people into a relationship with Jesus, the primary way God uses today is through relationships. It's through friendships. We no longer live in the day where we see the mass evangelistic services. Billy Graham, of course, is now dead and gone in eternity with Jesus. But we are not in the era any longer where you see 20 and 30,000 people gathering in one place to hear a simple message and responding to Jesus. The culture we live in today is actually post-Christian. Without going into a lot of detail, we now live in a post-Christian era. There was a time in the church's history, I'll go back to when my, my, my mom and dad first came to Jesus, post-World War II, right after World War II, and even leading up to that. There was a time in our country specifically where everyone had the same moral compass. Whether you believed in God or not, you know, everyone kind of agreed with right was right and what was wrong. And there was kind of a mutual agreement. We could talk the same language and we all kind of agreed on what, you know, the morality of the country, if you will. Even if you didn't believe in God necessarily, even if you didn't follow God, you believed in God. Even if you didn't read the Bible, you had a Bible and you didn't dispute the Bible. We don't live in that culture anymore. See, in that culture back then, people already had a common moral compass. People already had, uh, they believed the Bible to be true, didn't follow it, but they believed the Bible and they believed that there was a God, even though they didn't follow that God. So the church had an easier job because all the church had to do along the way is to show you how Jesus Christ conveniently fits into your picture. Jesus Christ conveniently fits into the picture you already have of God and the Bible, and you already do all the right things. We're just going to show you how Jesus comes in and really wraps the whole package up for you. And the church had great success in doing that. Not anymore, right? We're in a different culture today. And I've been pastoring long enough to see the changes that have taken place. So today, we don't, in our area specifically, in our, in our region of the world, when we start talking about God, I don't assume they believe in God. That church my parents grew up in, everybody believed in God. That wasn't an issue, but now today, maybe not. In the Bible, everyone didn't doubt, no one doubted the Bible, didn't believe the Bible. Today, I start from ground zero. You know, do they even believe in the Bible? How can you believe it? Is it true? Why would you believe that? So it's a very different culture today, but let me tell you what transcends the culture, friendships, 
relationships. And the primary way in which God is working in this culture today is through the relationships and the friendships that his people build with other people who are outside of the church. Now think about this for this moment. If we lived in an area that had never heard of Jesus before, never heard of God, now just think real quickly for me. Let's pretend for just a moment we live in an area that, I mean, has never heard the name of Jesus. Never, doesn't know what a Bible is, has no concept of God, nothing. We're talking like zero. No concept whatsoever. And God says, you know what? It's time for me to drop you down in there and see if you can't tell the story. So he flies you in. Helicopter drives you down, has your, you know, your, your moving pod sent to the new address you've got. And there you are and you move in. And God's plan is you're going to be the person who's going to establish a church in this area. You're going to tell people about Jesus. Don't forget, there's no common conversation you can have. You're not going to start talking about God or the Bible because they don't even know what the Bible is. They totally reject God. They reject anything spiritual. What are the first things you're going to do? Start a Christian school? I don't think so. Let's do a Christian radio station. I don't think so. Christian TV, that's what we need. I don't think so. If you have to start from scratch and you're in your new house in your near neighborhood, what's the first thing you're going to do to get this job done? You're going to walk out your door. You're going to walk across the street and you're going to say, hi, my name is Scott right? Friendships, relationship. That's how it starts. Because you see, it's in the relationships that we have and the friendships that we have that we begin to build a bridge that is strong enough to be talking about other things, spiritual things. That's the starting place. We start with friendships. But we got to add another word in there, and that is friendships of integrity. Friendships of integrity. What does it mean to have friendships of integrity? you got to walk with me for a little bit here because I have to hear some church history along the way. But it means this. It means that we love people and we care about people and we like people. Some of you need to hear that. And we like people because God likes people and because people matter to God. You know, if you're one of these Christians that say, well, I have to love you, not like you, you are wrong. Because that's the excuse for you. I love people, I just don't like them. Nope. You love people and you like people because they matter to God because he loves people and he likes people. People matter to us because they matter to God. We build friendships with people and we keep those friendships regardless of whether they ever come to church or not. Regardless if they ever never want to talk about God or not. We build friendships with people simply because they matter to us, because they're people and we care about people. If they never come to church, okay. If they totally reject God, okay. If they're antagonistic against God, fine, so be it. Still going to be a friend. You see, I grew up in a church, and I grew up in a church era. I was a kid growing up where what, we were, what was clearly communicated is that witnessing, going out and telling people the story about Jesus, it was our obligation. We were required to do that. If you didn't do it, you weren't living up to the obligation, and so we did it because we had to. We did it as, as kind of marking, marking a checklist of things we had to do. We had to go tell people about God and bring them to church. In fact, in one of the events that we had coming, it may have been an Easter, I can't recall the specifics, but I remember the day, and I'm not trying to be too accusatory because I'm sure I've said this. I, don't, I can't remember a specific time, but I could, I could see it happening. But our pastor said, listen, we, let's just pretend it's Easter. Easter's coming, and my question for you, he says, is, who are you targeting? Who are you targeting for this Easter? Now, friends, just stop and think about this real quickly. What do you do with targets? <laughs> you shoot bullets at targets. 
You shoot arrows at targets. Or thanks to this new phenomena, we can have the guy come and park his vehicle out there and we can throw axes at targets and see how well we do. Think about that process. Who are you targeting? Think of the Christians that are thinking, well, I'm going to go out there and see if I can't shoot me one of them non-church people and drag them to church with me on Sunday. Do you want to be a target? Let me ask you a serious question. Do you want to have a relationship with anybody who sees you simply as a target to fulfill their quota? And the answer to that is no, absolutely not. You see, relationships of integrity mean that we have friendships with people in relationships simply because they matter to God, period. Now, what that means for many of us is this. We talked about this last week. Researchers tell us that if you've been a follower of Jesus for longer than seven years, by, by year 10, seven to 10 years, almost all of your friends, if not all of your friends, none of them are non-church. They're all church people. What does that mean? It means that there's not a lot of hope out there for people to hear about Jesus because in seven to 10 years, we don't even live in a place where we would be telling the story, which means we have to work harder at it. Which means we have to make some deliberate decisions. If you're a follower of Jesus over a long period of time, you've got to make some specific decisions how to deliberately live your life differently. Now, last week I made this statement. We need Christians who will deliberately connect with people believing that those people actually want to believe in God, actually want to believe in spiritual things, actually want to believe that there's such a thing as good news. Now, so step one, we have relationships of integrity. Let me give you step two. I'll give you the, the second step right now, then I'll unpack it together. So step one, a follower of Jesus Christ who calls Essex Lines Church their home, builds relationships, friendships of integrity with people outside of the church. Step number two, those friendships of integrity build the bridge for a verbal witness to be shared at the appropriate time. Those friendships build the bridge so that the appropriate time, there's a moment where that person who says, I'm a follower of Jesus, can actually open their mouth and say something, give a verbal witness. Now, I lose a lot of you right there. Like, uh, I got to speak? Well, just stick with me. I'll get you through this, all right? Got to speak. Now, let me talk about it real quickly here. Some of the biggest problems that we Christians have in wanting to tell other people about the story of Jesus is because, let's be honest, and I'm hearing this more and more today, so let's just be, put it on the table. I hear more and more the thought process from Christians that have the attitude that says this, well, it probably isn't going to change anything anyway. They probably don't care anyway. It probably isn't going to change them. They probably aren't going to believe it. So it's just going to be a waste of time. You see, more and more Christians have got their focus so much on the culture in which we live and on the bad stuff in which we see that they take the approach that says, oh, it's of no use. Jesus, hurry up and come. If your viewpoint is it probably won't matter much anyway, I got news for you, then your story probably won't matter much anyway. Because you're taking the approach that says, well, not much is going to change. Now, I have been around Christians long enough to know that often it really is the case. I've been around churches and Christians long enough to say it actually probably is the case that it probably won't make much of a difference. It probably won't work. It probably is a waste of time because nobody in their right mind would want what many of us are selling. To be very honest with you, I've heard what some of us are selling and I think it's probably true. There's a whole lot of people that say, "Ah, I don't want that because they don't want what we're portraying. There's a movement that's been out for some time called the Stand Up Movement. 
The Stand Up Movement is a group of Christians that are saying that Christians need to stand up. They need to stand up for the truth. They need to stand up and call sin, sin. Call sin out in the public place. Call sin, sin. Take a stand for what is right. Confront those, who, those degenerates of society who are trying to pervert things and stand up and call right, right. Problem is, listen carefully before you get too angry at me. Problem is, Jesus didn't do that. I, I just have to tell you, he didn't. Jesus never did that. And quite honestly, the way that Christians, evangelical Christians, more and more look like a bunch of angry people. Would you not agree? So here's my question. Who wants to join a bunch of angry Christians? Hey, would you like to be one of us? No. I don't. I'm still happy. I'd kind of like to keep my happiness for a while. Nobody wants to be a part of that. Here's what Jesus said, Mark 16. And then he told them, go into all the world And look what it says there. And preach what? Good news. It doesn't say go out there and rail against all the bad news. It doesn't say go out there and try to make the non-Christian world try to act like Christians. It doesn't say that. It says just go out there and tell the good news. You don't have to try to derail the bad news. Just go tell the good news. Jesus' command was simple. Get out there and tell a good story. Now just a key note for you here along the way. The only time that Jesus ever stood up for the truth, the way people want to define it today, which is quite interesting to me, the only time Jesus ever stood up for the truth, if you will, was always with religious people. The only time he stood up and said, let me get this straight, people, it was with the church people. It was with the religious people. It wasn't with the people who were out there trying to figure out what to believe. He never did that. One of our elders in one of our meetings just recently, with tears, said, Scott, I've been reading this this passage, and it says this. He said that when Jesus saw the crowds, the text says this, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, for they were harassed. He saw them as harassed and hopeless, like sheep without a shepherd. Friends, listen very carefully. I said this last week. If there's ever a time for the church to not retreat, if there's ever a church for the, church, for the time for the church to not stand for the truth, but to stand for the good news, it's right now. Because the culture in which we live, people are hopeless and helpless. Think about this. No one even knows what to believe today. Think about that. What's going on in the world? I got to go look. Go up and look in your news feed. Can you believe it? See, no one knows what to believe. In fact, now we've got people pitted against one another, groups against group, because one will choose to believe this, one chooses to believe something else. We've got a world today, we've got a culture who really is hopeless and helpless. But Jesus is unchanging. And so we stick with that story, the story of Jesus. Jesus tells us, go, and he says, simply as, go tell the good news. Don't get wrapped up in all the other stuff that's out there. Just stick with the story. It's a great story. Do you like to get good news? The answer to that is yes. Who doesn't like good news? Who would prefer to have bad news over good news? And if you raise your hand, we're just going to beat you up. <laughs> we love good news. I got a couple projects going on in my house right now. And my wife would give anything. Diane would give anything. If I came down the stairs and said, good news. Good news. That three-minute project was just three minutes. Good news. I got a 10-minute project that's now in its third full day. 
And what she hears me, she hears me going, ah, ah. she goes, are you okay? Yep, I'm just having a stroke like I normally do on my projects. She love, would love to hear good news. I love good news. I won't go into details. I've had a week this week with a lot of bad news. People love good news. People are living in a world today where if someone could just give to them the best news they've ever heard, the good news of Jesus Christ. In fact, when our kids were little, we would fight to tell the good news. Because not only do we like receiving it, don't you like telling good news? See, this is the mystery to me. I got to tell you right now, this is the mystery about Christians. We have a great story to tell, and we seem to be afraid to tell it. I mean, when my kids were little, we had good news. If we made a decision, hey, kids, we're going to Disney World, we would fight our way down the stairs to get to tell them first. Kids, I got good news for you. No, Dad doesn't. I do. I mean, back and forth, we would go to who can get the good news out first? Not Christians today. Yeah, we got good news, but you probably don't want to hear it anyway. Well, no wonder there's no hope. People, everyone loves good news. And some of you are thinking right now, (laughs) not the people I work with, they don't. Not my friends, not my family, you're dead wrong. And no offense. But if all the people in your life aren't interested in good news, then I don't know how else to tell you this, but either what you're saying or what you're modeling, you must be putting in front of them a pretty bad spin on really good news. If all the people in your life don't want to hear good news coming out of your mouth, then you must be giving a pretty bad spin to a pretty good story. And a lot of Christians do that, unfortunately. So the problem is not them, it's us. Now, one problem that we have is that once you've been a Christian for a while, you forget how good the good news is, right? You see, for many of us, we have forgotten what it's like to not have hope. We have forgotten what it's like, that how miserable life can be, how huge the problems can look, how big the questions can be with no hope. We, we forget what it's like to, be, to worry through life. You see, as Christians, you can still worry, but you don't have to. If you're, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you don't have much choice. But if you're a follower of Jesus, you don't have to worry. If you, choo- if you worry, you're, you're choosing to do that. But we forget what it's like to not have to worry. We, we forget what it's like to not have to worry about death. Now, granted, none of us want to face death, but I don't have to be afraid of it anymore. We forget about that. We have critical questions. We forget what it's like to be in life and have cr- critical questions in our lives about purpose and about the future and where it's all going and direction, origin, all those kind of things. And we forget what it's like to actually have answers for those. But there's a lot of people that can't figure that out. Folks, these are real questions out there, real fears, real issues that people are facing. And they, they'd like to have some hope. But the longer that we stay huddled together, the longer that Christians will stay in our bubble, afraid of what the world is, and afraid of how bad it is, then just so you know, then there really is no hope. Because we're the ones that have the story to tell. There's a story that Jesus, re- that tells, that Jesus tells about two people who go to the temple to pray that kind of reveal a truth that I want to make sure you hear. Luke chapter 18. It says, now, to some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Luke chapter 18, verse 9. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. I'm not like the robbers, the evildoers, the adulterers, or even like that tax collector over there. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all that I get. But the tax collector, he stood at a distance 
He wouldn't even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. You've got two people. You've got the religious guy who goes, oh, Lord, thank you for making me me. God, I have to tell you that you did it right when you made me. Me and Mary Poppins were practically perfect in every way. God, I'm not like the rest of them. You know, yeah, yeah, God, I, of course, I've got sin in my life, but when you look at them, <laughs> I look good. That was his prayer. He goes, Lord, I'm not like the rest of them. I'm not, I'm not so degenerate as they are. Thank you, God, for making me me. And then he says, there's a tax collector. Don't forget, these are the worst, sinners of sinners. And the tax collector comes. Now, notice something. First of all, the religious guy, he walks right into church. He goes right into the temple courts. But Jesus says, but the tax collector, he doesn't even go into the temple courts. He stays off to the side. He won't even walk in the door. And in fact, he won't even look up to heaven because he doesn't see, feel he's worthy enough. In fact, he says, that guy prays with his head down, beating his chest, saying, oh God, please have mercy on me. And truth of it is, that's the only way he could pray. Off at a distance, hoping that somehow God would have mercy on him. Why? Why is that the only way he could pray? Because it was clear that the temple in that day, it was clear that the temple was for the people who were spiritually resolved, not the people who were spiritual wrecks. That the temple was the place who had all the answers, for the people who had all the answers, not for the people who had all the questions. And I would suggest to you that today people feel the same way. Typical people outside of the church view the church as the place for those who have all the answers. The church is the place for the spiritually resolved. The church is for the people to have their act together. It's not for the people like me who don't have it together. It's for the people who know, not for the people who don't know. It's for the people who have the answers to the questions. It's not for the people like me who have more questions than they have answers. Folks, that's the way that most unchurched people feel about church. And that's why we have to go out and we have to connect with them. Because they don't see that walking through the doors of the church, walking into this place, is something that's open for them. I shared this story, you know, when it happened years ago, as I've talked to different pastor groups, I've shared this in my, uh, in my in membership class, I have come to find out some, you know, 40, 40 years later in ministry, this is a, more the norm than the exception. So when our kids were in school, we saw the school system as the place for mission, mission of living. I mean, just so you know, if you've got kids in a public school system, that's, your, that's when you've got a wide open door. And so through the years of our kids being in school, we saw that as the place for, for, for doing what we're talking about here, for living out mission with people. And, and there wasn't, there wasn't an open house, a student, a, a, a you know, parent-teacher meeting or open house that we went to where we didn't go carrying food, brownies, baked goods, something. And you need to know that we would start the conversation with teachers and I'd walk up to that teacher and I'd say right in front, listen, you know, we're so-and-so's mom and dad and here's the deal. I'd say, first of all, in a minute you're going to tell me about my kid. You could, tell, you could tell me that she's great. You could tell me that she's horrible. You could tell me that she's doing a great job or a bad job. And that really doesn't matter. I mean, we care, but it doesn't matter. I just want you to know, starting off, I would not want to be you. <laughs> and of course, they usually smile. 
And I go, I'm being very serious. I would not want to be a teacher. I don't know how you do it. I said, because now we live in a culture today where it used to be you just came and you taught. You taught history, you taught history, you taught math, you taught math, but not today. I said, today you as a teacher, society, the community has put pressure on you. You've got to be the teacher. You've got to be the counselor. You've got to be the parent. You've got to be the police officer. I said, there's all the stuff you have to be where the day is that you had to be the teacher, not anymore. Now these kids need a parent. They need you to be their mom. They need you to be their dad. They need you to be the guidance counselor. They need you to be the, 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 the psychologist. I said, there is so much stuff put on you today. I am so sorry. I wouldn't want to be you. Thank you for staying and teaching. Now, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to say we got it right. There's a different climate today where people taking shots at the education system and shots at the teacher as opposed to sitting down with that teacher and just saying, I just want to say, man, thank you for being all in. Thank you for caring about my kid. Here's some brownies. And our kids all got A's. So, um, <laughs> no, I know some of you are thinking that, and that's just wrong. That was where we lived. And as we did that, one of those teachers, one, one, one recall, we built a, I built a relationship with one of those teachers. And we got close enough. I saw her in different other events. And so she knew now as a minister or whatever, I said, just Pat, you got to come to church sometime. That's it. And uh, I didn't find this out until a year after she came to church. But for one full year, one full year, almost every Sunday morning, she would get up and drive up here to church, thinking that maybe today she'd drive in the parking lot and she'd drive by. For almost a year, she would drive up here and drive by. Then she got a little braver. She pulled in the parking lot but she wouldn't come in. Then when she finally decided, maybe this, I, I got to do this, she parked in the parking lot for a couple weeks to watch what people look like, how they dressed. Why? Because every one of us wants to fit in, right? So she watched to see how they were dressed. Then it bothered her because a number of people walked in with Bibles. And she went, man, I, I don't know what to do with a Bible. I don't even have a Bible. She, oh, I do have a Bible. She told me the story. She said, so the next week I drove up there with my Bible I was getting ready to get out of the car and I realized the only Bible I had I brought, which was the family Bible, which was like this big, <laughs> about that thick. And she said, I sat there with this big white Catholic family Bible. I'm holding it thinking, if I walk in there, I'm going to look stupid. So for weeks, again, she didn't come back. Now, for some of you, you think, oh, that's crazy. No, it's not. I heard just two weeks ago a story Someone has recounted to me a friend that they invited and they had heard that that friend has driven by the church countless times and doesn't want to come in. Because the feeling that the people have, so many, is that the church is for the people who are spiritually resolved. The church is for the people that have it all together spiritually, not for the ones that are a mess and a wreck. That's why we have to go out and connect. And friendships of integrity. It's our mission. Peter Drucker says this, the business guru says this, ask yourself every day two questions. Number one, what business are you in? Then second question, and how's business? First question, what business are we in? We're in the witnessing business. We're in the storytelling business. Second question, and how's your business doing? And some of us would have to say, business isn't good. Because we haven't been telling the story. Now Paul is very clear in Acts chapter 2 that we need to complete the mission. 
Acts chapter 20, I should say, verse 24, Acts chapter 20. He says this, I don't care about my own life. The most important thing is that I complete my mission, the work that the Lord Jesus gave me. What is the mission? Here it is, to tell people the good news about God's grace. Paul goes, you know, at the end of the day, end of my life, only one thing matters, that I fulfill the mission, that I do what God called me to do. So what's the mission? Tell people the good news. That's it. What is it that we need to know to get this story right? Let me, in just a few moments, condense down a pretty big passage. But I want to condense it down because through the look at a guy named Philip, you get a very good look of what it will require of us to be good storytellers, the story of Jesus. And as I unpack this for you real quickly, I want you to see that every one of us are in the story. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you're sitting here going, yeah, I just love coming here, that's it. You're wrong. There's more to your walk with God than just showing up here and sitting here. And we see it in the story of Philip. Let me read it for you real quick, then I'll come and unpack it for you. Acts chapter 8 is where it starts. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the message there. And when the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, to the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of the treasury of the Kandike, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. And the spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stand next to it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot, and he heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, and then someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. And the eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who is the prophet talking about? Himself or someone else? And then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him, what's it say there? The good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, here's some water. What can stand in the way of me being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot, and then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. So let's unpack this real quickly. Everyone was scattered. Remember I told you that Philip would have been a part of the group, the the, the Christian group, probably back in Jerusalem. Persecution comes. All the Christians are scattered. But look what they did. While they were scattered, they kept telling the story. And that's how the gospel is being spread. And when Philip gets scattered, and when, he, when he's moving around, he finds himself in a place called Samaria. The people of Samaria were called the Samaritans. We've talked about it before. These were people that were looked down upon by the Jews. If there was any group that would be as bad, maybe to some even worse, than a tax collector and a sinner, it would be the Samaritans. Because they were Jews that married Gentiles, but on top of that, what they also did through their marriages, they brought into the Jewish faith all kinds of worship of idols and other gods. So the Jews had nothing to do with the Samaritans. They saw the Samaritans as being just sinful, sinner-type people. Philip goes and he connects with the people. 
preaches and talks to the people. And look at the words in this verse in verse 6. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. That's important because what we just saw is this. It means that his actions matched his words. It means that when they saw his actions, they were willing to listen to what he said. Now listen, I'm a follower of Jesus, and yes, I'm supposed to have a gospel Christian witness when I'm on an airplane, traveling around, going different places, or when I'm out and about. Got it. But truth of it is, those people on the airplane, they don't know me. The woman at the counter, when I go to check in, she doesn't know me. The people in town where I might travel, they don't really know me. But you know what? My neighbor, they know me. You see, those other people who see me, they don't really know if the way I'm acting right now really matches up. My words are actions, they don't match. But my neighbor knows. My coworkers know. They know whether it's the real deal or not. And so, friends, it's really critical. This is, this is so critical. Why it is that for every one of us, we need to be very careful how we live our lives. To live our lives out in such a way that people will look at us and say, you know what? Their words match their actions. That's important. Because if the actions aren't there, the words are worthless. Let me give you, let me give you four things it takes to be a good storyteller for the cause of Christ. What I'm going to ask you to do in your life. First one is this. Good storytellers are people who have good deeds. Good storytellers are people who do good deeds. You go, wait a minute. How does that work? It works because of what I just told you. Because what you do lets you speak. The authenticity of your deeds allows you then to tell the story. There's a quote that is attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. Many of you have heard it. It says this, preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use your words. Now, when we hear that, we go, man, I like that. And it means this. It means basically every day you live your life in such a way that you're living out the story of Jesus, the story of joy, the story of peace, the story of goodness, good news for the whole neighborhood and anyone who knows you. Live out your life in such a way that they see that every day in which you live. Now, One of the reasons why this quote has been so popular and favorable for Christians is because for a lot of Christians, it allows them to say this, oh good, I don't have to say anything. I'm just gonna, you know, do you you tell people Jesus? Nope, I don't. I just let them see Jesus in my life. Man, that sounds really good. You live your life with such holiness that everyone just sees Jesus in you. I, I grew up in a church that we had witnessing nights, church witnessing night. My home church had these nights. They'd meet at the church. They'd go door to door, uh, quite honestly. And so at my church, it was a Friday night or a Saturday morning. People were invited to come. They'd everybody would meet at a certain time and have a little prayer together. Then they'd go out and start hitting, the, the, you know, go to, go to the doors of the houses around the church, knocking on doors, inviting them to church, hopefully to have a, a quick Christian witness with them, and off they would go. Interesting thing about my home church, it was located right in town. Quite literally, we parked on the street because it was right in, in, the, in, in the city, surrounded by houses. I mean, the church is on the corner, house right next to it, each side, houses everywhere, and, and that was the area for probably 10 to 15 blocks, just house after house after house. Interesting thing, all the years I grew up in the church, I never remember any person that lived anywhere around the church actually attending the church. We all drove in. And now, think about that. Everyone lived around church. Nobody came to the church. Man, do you know how many times they had their doors knocked on? Every Saturday morning. Knocking on that door, come to church. 
Now listen, if I'm them, I'm, I would tell you what I'm doing. Saturday morning, pull the blinds, turn the TV off. You kids, be quiet. <laughs> Gonna act like we're not here. Now it's interesting, catch this, the word witness used in the Bible, I want to say every time, but it's not quite every time, but virtually every time, virtually every time the word witness is used in the Bible, it's used as a verb, not as a noun. I mean, sorry, a noun, not a verb. It's used as a noun, which means this. Witnessing is something that we are. It's not something that we do. It's written as a noun, which means it's not, you know, it's, you know I am the witness. It's not, I got to go do the witness. I am it. Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Not, you will do witnessing in, you will be my witness. So that's why the St. Francis quote works so well. Preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. Now the problem is, it sounds really nice, but there's a couple problems with with the quote from St. Francis of Assisi. The first one is, we don't have it recorded anywhere that he actually said that. That's kind of a problem, don't you think? That we don't have it validated anywhere that he said that. Second thing is, it doesn't sound like anything he would say. And the third thing is, though it sounds nice, it's really quite flawed. One Christian writer said this, I like this, saying, preach the gospel and when necessary use words is like saying, feed the hungry and when necessary use food. (laughs) I like that. Now, a better statement would be this. Preach, this, preach the gospel always with your words and with your deeds and make sure that your deeds affirm your words and your words affirm your deeds. That's a good statement right there. A good storyteller has a life of good deeds. If you've not seen much fruit in your witnessing, you've not seen much fruit in your storytelling, it might be because either your words are empty because they're not backed up with the deeds, the good deeds that God calls us to do. Let me give you a second tip on how to be a good storyteller from our story, and that is this. Good storytellers know good timing. Good timing. It's very key. Now, in the old method of witnessing, going out to do witnessing was determined by what timing? It was determined by the convenience of the witness, the witnesses. You know, it was convenient for us to go out on Friday night. It was convenient for us to go out on Saturday. So witnessing, quote unquote, the act of witnessing that was determined by the convenience of those who were going to be doing the witnessing. The convenience of the Christians. Not at the timing or the convenience of other people that might be hearing the story. Again, my church would go out on Friday nights or Saturday mornings. I got a question for you. If you're sitting home on Friday night and getting ready to watch movies and popcorn, if you're home on Saturday morning and you're having your waffles about 9 o'clock, while you're getting ready for breakfast, are you sitting there just hoping that Jehovah's Witnesses ring your doorbell at 9.15? Is that what you're praying? You know, oh, Lord, we're ready to eat. Please send some church people to the door right now while the bacon's still warm. Is that how you pray? The truth of it is you don't pray that way. I mean, that's why we shut the doors and act like we're not home. Because no one's sitting there hoping that someone will come and knock on our door and tell us about church. Jesus said to Peter, listen, you're a fisherman. You come follow me, I'm going to make you fishers of men. Every good fisherman knows there's a right season and a right time and a right way to fish. Everyone knows that. 
Now, Philip has a great helper in this moment. He's got the same helper that we have, and that is the Spirit of God. And God tells Philip, hey, listen, get going. I want you to go and I want you to stand by that chariot right there. You say, well, does God still do that today? Absolutely. And that happens most when you're already just living out the friendships and relationships. If you're going to sit back and say, well, I'll speak only when you direct me you direct specifically to do so, then you're, never, you're going to sit there and never say anything or do anything. See, Philip, don't forget, Philip's already telling the story. Philip's already out there. He's already living out the life. And so people who live out the life, you'll hear from God. And in that moment, God says, go. We will, in times in our lives, we'll have a sense real clearly when we're supposed to speak. We'll just know it's time to speak. When we're supposed to, to share something, to do something. And there'll be times when if you're being sensitive, you'll know, I just need to be quiet right here, not speak. The truth is, good timing is more about observation than it is waiting for the mystical hand of God to show up. Timing is about just observing. Ephesians 5, verse 16. Make the most of every opportunity you have for doing good. Don't act thoughtlessly, but try to find out and do whatever the Lord wants you to do. So at the right time, Peter goes to the Ethiopian man. And what does he do when he gets there? He just stops and he listens. Listening, that's the third step. Timing, number two. Third thing about a good storyteller is good storytellers are very good listeners. A person who's going to tell the story of Jesus is the person who's going to stop and listen. Philip listens, and then he asks a question, and it's a great question. He simply says, do you know what you're reading? You know what that means? Just so you know, Philip could have not known, and so he could be asking the question of the guy saying, listen, what does that mean? He says, do you know what you're meaning? It's a very, very passive, open question. Now, get this. Listening asks people questions. And when you actually listen to people and ask them questions, you speak volumes to how you value them and respect them. To simply start by saying, hey, I have a question for you. Do you know what you're, what is that about? You speak volumes to them just by that. Now, if people remember, we live in a pluralistic society. What means this, people have choices as to what gods they're gonna follow. You say, there's only one God. Yep, and that one living God said, everyone has free choice. That one living God says, everybody can choose, which means everyone gets to choose. That means the person I hang with or talk to, they get to choose for themselves. In fact, they have to make that choice. People have many choices of faith, many belief systems, and it's their right created by God to believe and follow whatever it is. And my job is to respect that. To respect that they can make that choice. Because God gave that, that right to believe whatever they want to believe. Now listen to this verse and what Paul had said in 1 Corinthians. Now before I read it, just so you know, this is going to be a real turmoil for some of you. Because we live now in a culture today where, you know, right and wrong is clearly defined. Often it's defined politically. You're either on the right or the left. You're Republican. You're Democrat. And for many Christians today, there's litmus tests as to where you're at. And for many people today, there's litmus tests of whether we can even have a conversation or not, depending on where you're at politically and whatever. This verse just is going to be a problem for you. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I don't act as though I know it all. And I don't say, well, they're fools. The result is that they're willing to let me help them. My goal is 
to get involved and let me help them. Look what he says. Yes, whatever a person is like, stop there, whatever a person's like, even though they are so far away from where you're at, he says, whatever a person's like, I try to find common ground with him so that he'll let me tell them about Christ and let Christ save him. I do this to get the gospel to them and also for the blessing I myself receive when I see them come to Christ. The Apostle Paul says, I don't know where you're at in your political realm. I don't know where that you believe. I don't know whether you're abortion or the right person or not. I don't really care. He goes, I try to find common ground so that we can begin to have a dialogue, conversation. We respect and we value them wherever they may land. We try to find common ground. Unfortunately for today, many Christians are seen as arrogant. Evangelical Christians as seen as arrogant, as full of pride, looking to pick fights, looking to stand for the truth, and not looking to find common ground. Respect and value happens when we thoughtfully listen and engage them. It's been said that the best evangelistic tools that God ever gave to a human being are two ears that he stuck on the side of your head. It's the best tool you could have to simply stop and listen to people. That's what Jesus did. He listened. He listened. They need to ask questions. And by doing that, they would begin to engage. And they didn't have loaded questions or trick questions, but then they'd engage and have a dialogue. I love this picture. God tells Philip, go up there and just stand by that chariot. And what does he do when he goes up? He doesn't walk up and go, so how about those gladiators last night, huh? Did you see the game? What was the score? He didn't have to force his way into a conversation. He just stood there, and he just listened. And he hears that he's reading from the book of Isaiah. And he says, hey, so do you understand what you're reading? And the Ethiopian goes, no, I don't. I wish somebody somebody could explain it. And then he gets invited up. Did you catch that? He gets invited up. Come sit with me and explain it to me. Acts chapter 8, verse 35, and then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. Let me tell you the last thing about a good storyteller. Good storyteller has thoughtful words. Thoughtful words. It means that in that moment, see, if I have a verbal, if I'm, if I'm having friendships or relationships that matter of integrity, there's going to be a moment where the door is going to be open and I can offer a verbal witness. But with that verbal witness, it doesn't mean you spill everything out in the moment. You know how to speak. And this is where I lose a lot of people because I go, oh, I got to say something? Yeah, you do. But I have to be thoughtful? Yeah, it should be. Does it have to be good? Well, I'm hoping it's not bad. I mean, you know, give me some choices here. But yeah, you have to speak. And this is where people get nervous. Philip tells them the good news. People need to hear the story. They need to hear his story. They need to hear your story. And here's where we begin to lose people. So what do I say? I don't know exactly what to say. Let me tell you what we know. What I've learned, what we know just of life. When you have relationships with people, doesn't matter who the people are, in the church, out of the church. When you have relationships with people, but specifically talk about out of the church, Sooner or later, every one of us goes through difficult times. 
Sooner or later, every person hits moments where you just want to have a conversation about stuff you may not know, stuff you, you may want some insight on. And if you just have good friendships with people, trust me, the door will be open and it's going to happen one day. So I share with you many, many times a referee soccer. I remember the day uh, that I, I, don't go, I don't tell people what I do. I don't announce I'm a minister or a pastor. When they get in the car, I don't lock the doors and throw a Bible down and say, well, you're going to be with you two hours for a ride. Good luck. I don't do that. I'm just Scott. And I joke with people. I just try to be who I am. I'm in a car. I got about a two-hour ride with a guy. And I've known him for a couple of years. We've ref together. And we're driving. And being five minutes in, he goes, um, I'm going through a divorce. Now, listen, we've never had in-depth talks. We don't personally like that. He just goes, I'm, I'm going through a divorce. And I just said, I'm so sorry. How are you doing? Um, now, notice right then and say, oh, I'm so sorry. You know, God has a wonderful plan for your life. I just said, how are you doing? And so he started talking about things. And he goes, uh, so, you know, maybe you can pray for me sometime. And that doesn't mean right now. Okay, we pray. Stop the car and pray right now for you? No. So I said this to him. Now, listen, any one of you can do this. I said, hey, listen, so number one, I will definitely pray for you. But more than that, if there's something else I can do for you, like you want to get together, go talk, you want to just go out, just tell me. There's something else I can do for you, I'll do it. But I do have to tell you this. God has made a huge difference in my life. I can't even begin to tell you how. But, you know, I'm not holier than thou. I'm not perfect. In fact, you know, I'm married and, you know, we have problems. You know, just because I might believe in God doesn't mean no marriage problems. I said, you know, my wife and I, we have to figure stuff out too. So I'm right there with you. So I just want you to know, no holier than thou thing at all. I just want you to know, God's made a huge difference in my life. And if you ever want to talk about that stuff, I'd be happy to do that. Yeah, I'll pray for you. That was it. Listen, listen. There isn't one person here who couldn't say what I just said. So forget this. Well, I'm not biblically trained. So what? I don't have years of Bible experience. So what? Do you have a story to tell? Jesus Christ made a difference in your life? Then you can speak. And you can say, you know, I don't have all the answers here. But I just want you to know I'll be praying for you. And and I care. You see, what business are we in? We're in the witnessing business. Not the defense attorney. I have to defend God. Not the judge, not the jury, but the witness. A witness is just someone who tells what they've seen. That's what a witness is. Why is it that so many Christians today want to be the jury? Why is it so many Christians today have become the judge? Judging the world, judging the people, judging where it's all at. Friends, God didn't call you to be the judge or jury. That's his job. Your job is just to tell the story of what you've seen. So many people are afraid to tell their story, I think, because they're afraid of hard questions. So let me tell you what to say when you get the hard question, where someone says, yeah, fine. So you're one of these Jesus people. Will you tell me how God can do X, Y, whatever it might be? I'm going to help you. Here's our answer. I don't know. Boom. Done. Gotcha. I don't know. Why do you think you have to know everything? I don't know. Yeah, I wonder that too. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll see if I can't find a better answer for you. Because right now I'm not sure myself, but I'll see if I can find a better answer. We'll get back again. We'll talk again. I'll see if I can figure that out. 
There's anybody here who can't say, I don't know. I mean, you say it all the time. So say it when the hard question comes. But here's the real issue. Here's where we'll end today. Here's the real issue. That even if you get to that place where you can say, and I've been there, where you say to somebody, hey, listen, I'm not, I'm not holier now. I don't have all the answers, but I just want you to know whatever you're going through, uh, God's radically changed my life, and I think he could really make a difference in your life too. It's at that point that none of us know what to do next. Right? Because when you say that, how many times in your life when you say that, uh, as I know God's made a difference in my life, I think he can make a difference in yours. How many times has it happened where somebody goes, oh, please tell me more about Jesus? Does that happen? Not to me. Usually when you say the verbal witness part, you get this. Okay. Even though they may have asked the question, they kind of go, Okay. So now you say, so, so then, what, then, then what do I do? Next week, I got the answer for you. I'm going I'm to show you right here. What you do is on this card. This card will change your life. So come get one. But before that, we end with this. The reason we're talking about this stuff, because this door represents the church door. This door represents the doorway to a relationship with Jesus. And that door is the hardest door for anyone to walk through. You see, for most of the culture, if that door is the church door, they say, I can't walk in there. I had one guy talk to for years and he said these exact words to me. Scott, if I walked in there, the church roof would collapse because of my life. So we walk out that door to walk with them through that door and tell them about Jesus. Please stand. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, there was a time where none of us would walk through that door. And now we do so pretty easily. So you remind us. You remind us what we're called to do, the business that we're in, that we are to be storytellers. I pray you'll bring people back so we take that next step because for a lot of us, we just don't know what to do after we say something and nothing happens. So you, you bring us back and we'll see the next step as you do your work in us and your work through our church. Dismiss us in your grace. Amen. God bless you.